0: Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. Today's episode is one that our OG listeners has probably heard us cover before. And if you're not an OG and you're newer here, you may have started at the very beginning episode, so you have heard it as well. This story was the second ever story that we recorded here on Crimeaholics Podcast, and I have to say, the way we executed it was not very good. Our professionalism wasn't really there. We had no idea what we were doing, and the audio was straight garbage. For that reason, I am going to be recovering and retelling the story of the lust killer, or also known as the shoe fetish Slayer. I also wanted to say before we get started that this case is pretty gruesome, and there is some details that will be shared that might be a little bit disturbing for some. So, listener discretion is advised. Jerome Henry Brudos, or also known as Jerry Brudos, was born in 1939 in Webster, South Dakota. He was born to Eileen and Henry Brudos. His parents already had a son named Larry, and so when they found out that they were expecting another baby, they were really hoping for a girl this time, which along came Jerry. Jerry. It was said from the get-go that his mom really didn't care much for Jerry. She was said to be fairly abusive and often ignored him completely, and she would belittle him. While Jerry's older brother Larry could do no wrong in the eyes of Eileen, she was always on Jerry's back. He never did anything right. Both Larry and his father were aware of the dislike for Jerry, But both were apparently so intimidated by Eileen that they didn't do anything about it. They allowed her to berate him, belittle him, treat him like he was nothing. As a young child, Jerry and his family moved to the Pacific Northwest. At the age of five, Jerry was playing in a local junkyard, which is where he stumbled upon a pair of women's shoes. They were shiny black patent leather high-heeled shoes. And one of the shoes still had a rhinestone studded clasp on it. Jerry was instantly fascinated by the shoes because he had literally never seen anything like it. His mom was known to wear flats. So these shoes were really interesting to him. So being a five-year-old boy that he was... He slipped them on and he went home and he showed his mom what he found. Like, he thought it was the coolest thing ever. Which, Eileen flipped out. She yelled and was outraged, calling him wicked and ordering him to take the shoes back to the dump. Jerry, being the five-year-old that he was, he couldn't understand what exactly was that was wrong. He had no idea that boys wore certain kind of shoes and that if he put these shoes on, that was quote-unquote frowned upon. So he was completely oblivious to why exactly his mom was mad. But it was apparent to him that whatever he did was wrong and this deeply forbidden act. And despite all of that and how his mother treated him, Jerry decided to hide them. When Eileen found the shoes later again, she became outraged and she made it into this big show of burning them in front of him and making him watch as some form of punishment. About a year or so later, when Jerry was in the first grade, his teacher kept two pairs of shoes in the class. And I'm going to assume it's because she wore one pair of shoes into the school for like a professional sake. But when she was in the classroom doing her teachings, she switched into more comfortable shoes. But one of the pairs was a pair of high heel shoes. Jerry attempted to steal these shoes from her. Another student caught it, ratted it out, and he had to confess that he tried to take them. Of course, she was angry and upset, and she starts yelling at Jerry, and she does this in front of the whole entire class, and he gets embarrassed and upset, and he runs out of the classroom. On another occasion, some family friends were visiting Jerry's family and had brought their teenage daughter. And at one point in the night, she began feeling ill. And so they were like, okay, you know, why don't you go lay down? And she went to go lie down on Jerry's bed, where she eventually falls asleep. When she went to lay down, she didn't end up taking her high-heeled shoes off before falling asleep. Jerry later recalled that he was so transfixed and sexually aroused by looking at her shoes. He tried to slip them off while she slept, and she woke up and obviously was mad and told him to get out. When Jerry was eight, his family moved to Grants Pass, Oregon. They moved next door to a family who had several teenage girls, and Jerry began sneaking into the house with the girls' brother, and they would play with the girls' clothing. It was then that his fetish grew from this fascination of shoes to women's undergarments. In 1995, at the age of 16, Jerry was beginning to go through those stages of puberty that all boys go through. Again, Eileen was abusive and showed absolute disgust about anything sexual in nature. She went as far as making him hand wash his bedding after a wet dream he had. It was at this time that he began to have weird sexual fantasies. He fantasized about abducting a girl, forcing her to obey him, and having her beg for mercy. During this time, he was stealing women's shoes and underwear to use them while he masturbated. In the summer of 1955, Jerry stole the underwear of an 18-year-old girl. He decided afterwards that he wanted to get nude photos of this girl instead of just purely relying on her underwear for his sexual pleasures. So Jerry came up with this huge elaborate plot to get the girl to pose nude for him. He invited the girl to his house and he gave her this impression that he would help her get her undergarments back. When she arrived at his house, she was greeted by a masked man and not Jerry. The man forced her to remove her clothes and he took several photos of her. The man then ran off in a hurry and she quickly got her clothes back on and rushed to leave. Before she got away, Jerry appeared saying he saw the intruder and that he, Jerry himself, had been locked in a barn that whole entire time. In 1956, at 17 years old, Jerry was still in high school when he lured a 17-year-old girl to his car. There were different reports on this incident, but one stated that he drove her to a deserted farmhouse where he profusely beat her. Another stated that he threatened to stab her if she didn't comply to his sexual demands. And then another article stated that he took her back to an area where he dug a hole in the side of a hill. And this apparently was where he intended to keep her as a sex slave. Either way, it was then that he was arrested, and when his home and car were searched, they found women's undergarments, photos, and photo equipment. Jerry was arrested for assault and battery. Shortly after his arrest, he was committed to the Oregon State Hospital for an evaluation and treatment. While hospitalized, he was able to still attend high school, where he excelled in both math and science. His initial diagnosis was adjustment reaction of adolescence with sexual deviation and fetishism, which I didn't really know what this meant, so I asked a friend who is a mental health therapist to break it down for me. She said the diagnosis system now is much different from then, but in modern day terms, it pretty much is saying that he is struggling to adjust to adolescence and has developed maladaptive behaviors. Today, there is a diagnosis of adjustment disorder, which usually requires a qualifying traumatic experience, which I would say that the abuse of his mother would be considered pretty traumatic. There is also a paraphilic disorder such as fetishistic disorder she states that for brudos he sounds like he would be diagnosed with fetishistic disorder and antisocial personality disorder after eight months of hospitalization Jerry was released and deemed not a danger to society but before his release he was officially diagnosed with schizophrenia which apparently was kind of a common diagnosis that they would hand out back during this time so whether he was really schizophrenic is unknown but it was determined that his anger was directed primarily against his mother In 1957, Jerry graduated high school at the age of 18 and tried college until he was 20 years old and decided to drop out. In 1959, he joined the Army but only served less than a year before being discharged due to his weird obsessions. After being discharged from the army, he moved back to Oregon and moved to his parents' two-bedroom home in Corvallis, where he was allowed to sleep in the second bedroom while his brother Larry was away at college. But any time that Larry came home for a visit, Jerry was forced to sleep in the shed behind the house. One night after running an errand, Jerry spotted a young girl who was walking home and he became excited. He strangled her until she was unconscious. He then stole her shoes and ran off. That night, he slept with her shoes to make himself feel more powerful. Jerry became a licensed broadcast technician and worked at a radio station in Corvallis as their engineer. During this time, he became friends with some of the male co-workers, but he was still terribly shy when it came to actually speaking to a woman. In 1962, Jerry was teasing a boy who he would hang around the radio station about finding him a girlfriend. The boy ended up taking him to a house where he introduced him to a pretty dark-headed 17-year-old girl named Darcy. And to Jerry's surprise, Darcy was almost as shy as he was. Jerry did all of the normal things with Darcy. He courted her, pulling out chairs for her, buying her gifts, opening doors for her, and treating her how a lady really should be treated. She was completely impressed by him and said that they began a sex life that was effortless. Darcy said there was never anything strange about his sexual performance and that he was tender and loving. She knew absolutely nothing about his past and his dark fetishes that he harbored within him. Before they were even ever married, Darcy would willingly pose nude for Jerry while he snapped photographs and developed them in his own dark room. He often asked Darcy to pose in black high-heeled shoes and requested that she did the housework completely nude except for the high-heeled shoes and the two of them pretty much romped around the house naked all the time. Before long, Darcy was pregnant and they decided to get married. In 1962, the couple had their first child, which was a girl named Megan. The first three years of the marriage seemed to be happy, but after three years of marriage, something started happening that caused a strain between Darcy and Jerry. First, Jerry couldn't hold a job. Darcy also felt that Jerry was distant from their daughter. She felt that he avoided physical contact and paid little attention to her. At this point in time, Darcy was beginning to turn down the request she once willingly did for Jerry. High-heeled shoes hurt her back and she was too busy tending to their daughter and house to dress up for Jerry. Their sex life was slacking and their daughter was getting too old for them to be running around the house naked all the time. During this time, he was still going out prowling at night and stealing women's underwear. In 1967, Jerry got a job in Portland and despite their marital issues, Darcy got pregnant again. Jerry was super excited about the pregnancy and wanted to be in the room when she delivered. But Darcy asked the doctors not to allow him to be present in the room, later explaining to him that she didn't want him seeing another man touching her and that she didn't feel it was right. The second baby was a boy and they named him Jason. Jerry continued to kind of ignore Megan much like his own mother did to him but he doted on Jason and took him on errands with him. The marriage between him and Darcy strained further and she spent a lot of time away from the house hanging out with girlfriends while Jerry worked in his basement on electronics while his mother babysat the kids upstairs. There was an accident in the basement one evening that is said may or may not have caused Jerry down the path to becoming a serial killer. While repairing an electrical device, Jerry touched a live wire that sent a huge jolt of power that knocked him off his feet. He was burned, dazed, and sustained a neck injury. It was after this accident that he began having such severe headaches that there were days he could not work at all. Shortly after the birth of his son, Jerry stalked a woman in Portland. But this time, instead of knocking her down and stealing her shoes, he followed her home. He waited until he thought that she was asleep and broke into her apartment. When she woke up, he attacked her, strangling her until she was unconscious. He later testified that her limp body aroused him so much so that he raped her. He left her apartment with a pair of shoes that he later claimed were his favorite that he ever stolen. At the end of 1967, Jerry's fantasies escalated and he began fantasizing about keeping preserved female corpse in the freezer so he could dress them in his favorite lingerie and pose them however he wished. January 26, 1968, 19-year-old Linda Slosson, a beautiful blonde encyclopedia saleswoman, got her addresses mixed up and accidentally showed up at the door of Jerry Brudos, thinking that she had an appointment there. Jerry was working out in his lawn when she showed up and he showed her to the back door and down a set of stairs to the basement telling her he was interested in purchasing a set of her encyclopedias. Linda sat on a stool in Jerry's basement workshop where she began her sales pitch. Somehow Jerry snuck behind Linda and struck her with a two-by-four. He then strangled her to death And he hid her body under the stairs and went upstairs where his own mother was babysitting his daughter and asked her to go out and buy some hamburgers. Jerry later told police that when his mother left, he pulled Linda out from under the staircase and tried on different lingerie outfits on her from his collection. He kept her body through the night until about 2 a.m. when he loaded her up and drove the car to a bridge that was over a river. He parked his car and took out his jack to make it look like he had a flat tire. And just before he tossed her into the river, he decided at the last minute to cut her foot off because he wanted to keep some part of her. He cut her left foot off and took it home and put it into his freezer where he would later take the frozen foot and put it into different shoes and take pictures of it. Linda is Jerry's only victim that her body was never recovered. In the spring of 1968, Jerry, Darcy, and their kids moved to Salem, Oregon. The house they rented had a detached garage that Jerry was excited to turn into his new workshop. He installed a heavy padlock on the door and he put in an intercom system and he told Darcy to never enter the garage unless she called to him on the intercom first. He told her that he installed a photo darkroom in there and if she didn't announce to him that she was going to enter, it could ruin all of his photo work. He installed a large freezer in the garage, which this really irritated Darcy because she thought, okay, this doesn't make sense if I'm going to be the one cooking the dinners, I need access to the freezer. But he insisted that she could just tell him what she needed and he would bring it inside to her. Darcy noticed one evening that Jerry was gaining weight. She made a joke out of it to him saying he was getting fat. And Jerry got up from the couch, walked out, and about 10 minutes later, he came out wearing a bra with stuffing in the breast, a girdle with stockings, and a huge pair of high-heeled shoes. Jerry asked her if he looked thinner now, and Darcy just kind of nervously laughed it off. After an awkward silence, Jerry left and came back dressed like himself. They never spoke of it after that, and they just kind of pretended that this never happened. But this gives you a look into some of the things that were going on in his mind. In November 1968, Jerry was headed home from work when he spotted a woman on the side of the highway. Jan Whitney's car had broke down and left her stranded. Jerry examined her car and told her that he could fix it, but he would need to drive back to the house to grab some of his tools. Jan willingly went with him. When they arrived at his house, they parked in the driveway where he told Jan that his wife wasn't home yet and they had to wait until she got there in a few minutes to open the house. For whatever reason, he gets into the back seat of the car and tells Jan that he wants to play a game. She sat in the front seat and he asked her to close her eyes and without using her hands to demonstrate, he wanted her to describe how to tie a shoelace. Jan was totally up for the challenge so she closes her eyes and she begins describing the process of tying a shoe. Jerry slips a strap around her neck and he strangled her right there in the car parked in their driveway. He then raped her corpse in that very same car. After he carried her body into his workshop where he dressed her in clothes from his collection just as he had with Linda. But this time he photographed her and then he raped her again. When he was finished, he hoisted her up on a hook in the garage ceiling where he kept her body hanging for days. Every day, he would rush home from work, dress her in various different clothing, and have sex with her again. He wanted something of her to keep, like he did with Linda, so he cut off one of her breasts and experimented with preserving it. He stuffed it with sawdust and hung it on a tack board like a trophy. He also tried making a plastic mold of it so he could make a paperweight out of it, but he didn't end up liking the end result. Jerry still had Jan's body hanging in his garage when he was nearly caught after a long Thanksgiving weekend away. While gone, someone skidded and crashed into the garage with their car. The crash knocked a small hole through the wall that the police ended up shining a light through in an attempt to assess any possible damage, but the police did not see her hanging from the ceiling. Since the Brudos family wasn't home, the police left their card with a note saying they needed to assess the inside of the garage for their incident report. When they got home, he hurried and wrapped Jan's body in plastic and hid her inside a shed behind the garage. He then called the police to come assess the damage and when they left, he took Jan's body and threw her body into the river, weighed down with automotive parts. It wouldn't be until June 1969 when Jan's body would be recovered in the Willamette River. Just a little side story here, my husband's grandfather, Ken Pavlik, was working as a rescue diver for the Marion County Sheriff's Department, and he was one of the men who recovered Jan's body. In 1969, Darcy began noticing more and more bizarre behaviors coming from Jerry. She once walked into his garage unannounced and spotted pictures of nude women in his photography developing trays. When questioned, he said he was developing photos for a college kid and reminded her not to enter without calling over the intercom. What Darcy didn't know is that those women in the images were likely dead. Darcy also found pictures that Jerry took of himself using a camera timer posing on their bed in women's clothing. One day, she also found what looked like a very realistic plastic copy of a breast. Jerry told her it was for an idea he had of a novelty item, a breast paperweight, but he didn't like how it came out. Darcy later testified that he made another one that was slightly different. He ended up putting this one on their fireplace mantle in the living room where police later found it. In March 1969, Jerry is on the hunt again for his next victim. At about 10 a.m., Jerry spotted an attractive female walking in a miniskirt and heels going into a department store. He parked his car in a multi-level parking garage and went into the store to find her. On the way back out to his car, Jerry spotted a 19-year-old Karen Sprinker getting out of her car where she headed into the department store doors to meet her mother inside. Jerry met her at the door with a pistol and forced her back into the garage where he shoved her into his car. He took her to his home, into his workshop where he raped her. After raping her, he allowed her to use the restroom in his home and forced her back into the workshop garage and forced her to pose in various different outfits and shoes while he took pictures. He then killed her by putting a rope around her neck and hoisting her up on the hooks from the ceiling. He ended up having sex with her corpse again. He cut off both of her breasts to experiment with and dressed her in one of his favorite bras he had. On April 22nd, Jerry attempted to abduct 14-year-old Leanne Brumley, but she thankfully was able to escape. April 23rd, 1969 in Portland, 22-year-old Linda Saley is headed out to her car with gifts she had just purchased for her boyfriend when Jerry appeared in the mall parking lot. He told her he was a police officer, showed her a phony badge, and told her she was arrested on suspicion of shoplifting. Then Jerry drove for about an hour to his house in Salem where he pulled the car into the garage because his wife was inside preparing dinner. Jerry tied her up inside the garage and then went into the house to have dinner with his family. When Jerry got back into the garage, Linda had gotten out of the ties but had not attempted to escape or use the phone in his garage. He wrapped a strap around her neck and began to strangle her, which at this point she tried to fight back. After she died, he also raped her. Jerry then decided to do another experiment, but at this time he wanted to see what would happen if he electrocuted a body. So he hung her on the hook like he did the other victims and stuck hypodermic needles into her ribcage. He then sent an electrical current through them to see what would happen. He kept her for another day after this and continued sexually abusing her corpse. But he did not cut off her breasts because he said her nipples were not dark like they should be. Her body was found in May 1969 by a fisherman. Her body had been weighed down by an auto transmission. Two days later, Karen Sprinker's body was found just 50 feet away from where Linda Saley was found. In 1969, Jerry began to phone dorm rooms at the Oregon State University, and he somehow manages to schedule several blind dates with women this way. But at this point, police were already on to a pattern that the killer had. They started keeping watch on places where young, attractive women could be found. A female student who claimed to have gone on one blind date gives the police the description of Jerry Brudos. May 26, 1969, Jerry attempted to contact the girl again for a second date. She told police and Jerry was questioned in the residence hall at the school. Jerry cooperated and he was not arrested. But after he left, the police examined Jerry's record and decided to go to his home for questioning. At his home, they spotted some suspicious things and began building their case. May 28th, they had enough evidence to obtain an arrest warrant. Jerry attempted to flee when he was being served his arrest warrant on the attempted kidnapping of Leanne Brumley. At one point while in jail, Jerry calls Darcy and asks her to burn some clothing, but she absolutely flat out refused. On June 23rd, investigator Jim Stovall was able to get Jerry to confess to the murders of the two recently discovered bodies of Karen Sprinker and Linda Saley, as well as confessing to the two murders of Linda Lawson and Jan Whitney. On a quick little side note, while I was doing research on this case, I came across the name Jim Stovall, and I knew that it sounded familiar. What I didn't say earlier is I am actually from Salem, Oregon, and I used to work at a restaurant called the Original Pancake House. And it was there that I waited on a man whom told me all about how he was a big time investigator and that he helped crack a very huge case back before he retired. He had given my mom and I a book written by Ann Rule that he was featured in, and that man was investigator Jim Stovall. When I realized I knew the name, I googled him, and sure enough, I found his obituary, where he died at the age of 92, back in 2017. On June 4th, 1969, Jerry was arraigned for the murder of Karen Sprinker, where he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Which Jerry was tested by several psychiatrists. The tests showed he had an above average IQ and cognition and was deemed not criminally insane. He is diagnosed with antisocial personality, manifested by fetishism, transvestitism, exhibitionism, voyeurism, and especially sadism. On June 27, 1969, Jerry was charged with three counts of first-degree murder for the murders of Jan Whitney, Linda Saley, and Karen Sprinker. Jerry decided to revoke his plea of not guilty by reason of insanity and pled guilty. The same day, he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences because there was no death penalty at the time in Oregon. He was never charged with Linda Slauson's murder because her body was never found. July 17, 1969, a neighbor implicated Darcy Brudos in one of the murders claiming that Darcy helped Jerry carry a body from the garage. And in August, Darcy is arraigned and charged with aiding and abetting in the first-degree murder of Karen Sprinker. Darcy pleads not guilty, claiming she had no involvement and was found not guilty October 2, 1969. From June 1969 until January 1971, Jerry and his lawyer had several failures in appellate court until their last appeal was rejected on May 25, 1977. In 1999, Jerry goes up for parole, and the parole was not granted, and the parole board made it clear to the victim's family that Jerry will never be released. Jerry Brudos died in prison on March 28, 2006 from liver cancer. At the time of his death, he was the longest incarcerated inmate in the Oregon Department of Corrections, having spent a total of 37 years in prison. And that is the story of the serial killer Jerome Henry Brudos, the shoe fetish slayer. Crimaholics, if you're not already a part of our podcast discussion group on Facebook, you can find us by searching "Crimaholics Podcast Discussion Group. You can also find us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. Also in the description of this episode, I will include a link where you can suggest a case. We are always looking for new case suggestions, so drop your information in that link. Crimaholics, that's all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care.